TTB Music Podcast. Merry Christmas is. I know we. I know. I say this practically every other year. We should put some jingle bells on the back of that, you know, as it comes in. Post production. Post production. <laughs> oh, they're there. He said, assuming you put them in. Or not. <laughs> ho 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 ho, and a hi he he, and uh, all that kind of stuff. Bad uh, humbug. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Uh, it's our usual Christmas podcast. It is. But it's not our usual Christmas podcast because after years and years and years, it seems like it, <laughs> of uh, listening to various people not improve on previous versions of the Christmas song and mm. Little Drummer Boy and various other things. More of that later. <laughs> <laughs> we decided, <Okay>. actually, <laughs> sod that. Um, so this is one of our, our special podcasts that we do every now and again, but we haven't done one for quite a while. Um, the Olympics. Yeah, I think it was the Olympics. <laughs> That's quite a while, yeah. Yes, that, is, that counts as quite a while. So anyway, the, the, the general kind of idea behind this particular podcast was for us each to pick three albums that we consider um, underappreciated or lost classics, uh, or ones that just generally should be brought to the wider attention, perhaps, of the listening public. Uh well, our very limited listening public, admittedly, but you know, you know what I mean. And that's as kind of loose as the criteria was, really. It wasn't trying to say it had to be by uh, obscure artists. In fact, several of them, the ones we discussed are not by obscure artists, but just ones that we kind of thought had either got forgotten about or perhaps could people could do with reminding of. So, in this podcast, we are going to review uh, Music from the Elder by Kiss. Uh, Pet Shop Boys release, Fishbone, Truth and Soul, Nine Inch Nails with Teeth, Spirit, The Twelve Dreams of Dr. Sotonicus, and David Bowie, Outside or One Outside, if you're being particularly kind of pedantic. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, listeners will recognise who picked what, I think. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Uh, but the way we're going to do is, I think, I think we're going to st- start off with the person that suggested it, Saying why it's just it, and then okay. and then the other person responding rather than our usual manner of doing these things. That's good. No, I like that. Um, Glad you explained the rules to me. Uh, so that guess that misses me first, then, isn't it? Um, so we're going to start off with we're going to go back to 1981. Uh, we're going to go back to the ninth album by Kiss, and it's one of those kind of things you're thinking. There you are, one of the biggest rock bands in the world, um, loved by your fans. Selling lots of records, but kind of feeling unloved by the critics. Not never really getting you. Always just thinking you're kind of making this throwaway kind of not quite bubblegum rock, but not far off it. So kind of looked down upon, as it were. Mm. And you're also in a world where Pink Floyd have released the wall, and it's sold bucket loads, and you kind of go, why can't we do that? So you. Call up the producer of their <laughs> album, Bob Ezrin, and say, Bob, come over. You hire an orchestra, you hire a choir, and you're going to go, okay, let's work on our masterpiece. And you Fantastic. do. And then you release your album, and nobody buys it. Um, the vast majority of Kiss fans hated this record when it came out. Um, critics, ironically, actually 
were quite kind to it. Uh, actually, the reviews of the album were actually genuinely quite positive. However, the band, following the fans, quickly abandoned the record themselves too. And uh, to give a quote from, from let's say, Paul Stanley's quote, which, it was just folly, I'm not ashamed of it, but that in the movie Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, and believe me, if you haven't seen that, you really should. It's a classic. Fantastic. Uh, stand out as I was getting off at the wrong exit. So that's the kind of thing you've got going here. I got this present, I got this album as a Christmas present. Did you? In Christ Christmas 1981. Wow. Thank you, thank you, my brother, Phil. And I said, I, I was a Kiss fan. I, I, I owned all the previous Kiss albums. Thought Kiss Alive 2 was one of the best records ever made. Still one of the best live, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> live albums of all time. Uh, but I loved this. The, the kind of whole pomp and kind of ridiculousness of it just appealed to me greatly. And I just kind of thought, this is just <laughs> bonkers, but fun bonkers. And in fact, unfortunately, we were, we were reviewing the uh, 1997. Uh, remaster of it rather that was really unfortunate yeah, rather, than the, rather than the original which had, which, which had all the spoken bits in it which made it really really silly <laughs> however the thing, <laughs> thing, thing, thing is despite all the things that are easy to knock about the kind of pomposity of the record and pomposity of the lyrics this album for me still contains some of Kiss's best material so you've got songs like for me um a World Without Heroes, which contains, still for me, Gene Simmons' best vocal performance on any Kiss song. Um, Just a boy! Uh, um, Under the Rose, Dark Light, and I, which is just ridiculous, over-the-top, typical kind of Kiss in a way. And that's the one that I thought people would like more. Lou Reed co-writes several lyrics on this album. <laughs> that's, how they, that's how bizarre this record is. <laughs> Uh, and Cher did a quite amusing uh, and quite bicycle version of A World Without Heroes on her uh, 1991 album, Love Hurts. And it just, for me, going back to it, remains one of the few Kiss albums I can come, I can come back to and put on and listen to from start to finish and still kind of go, you know what, I still really like this record. And so all you other Kiss fans that didn't buy it, you were wrong. <laughs> oh my goodness you made me listen to this record <laughs> um, I, I'm quite amused by the quote here that um, in 2006 Q Magazine ranked this actually below Oasis standing on the shoulder of giants um, I well thought... above actually uh, sorry above above yeah. above yeah 44th in the list of worst albums as opposed oh, okay. to uh... yeah, that, you, yeah okay so it was bet it was Oasis's album was better than this um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, according to that that particular list, and that, and and do you know what? If we ever run this exercise again, I've now made a mental note: standing on the shoulder giants. <laughs> Make a case for that. Anyway, um, this album was a fascinating experience. I, I you know, it was um, one of the most bizarre rock albums that we've listened to in the duration of... And we have done it. We, we did do it. We did, we, did, we, did, we, did, we did a Kiss album, didn't we? Yeah, we've done a Kiss album. We've actually yeah. done some really bizarre rock albums this year as well, which has somehow worked. And um, in the spirit of this 
this enterprise, I'm not going to take it too seriously, but and uh, I completely agree with you, actually. A World Without Heroes and I are possibly classics, mm. which leads one to wonder what happened the rest of the <laughs> album, <laughs> in retrospect. And I appreciate you probably still have some nostalgic, lingering love for this record. I do. Um, and um, and I, can, I can see you making the case for it. Here's an example of a band that, that was known for doing one thing and then did something completely different. And, and any, any artist, and we've reviewed many and said the same thing over and over again, all credit to, to them for, for doing that. But um, no, something just doesn't quite click with this record. And uh, I can see where the uh, perhaps the, uh, the lack of appreciation, even from the fandom, possibly comes from. When you think about classic Kiss and then put it up against this record and you can think about those disappointed white painted faces with the big black <laughs> eyeshadow as they as they stunned us. I, I read somewhere interesting while we were, were reviewing this that this album had never actually been done live and it was only in more really recent times that they'd picked one or two tracks yeah that's plenty because there's, anno- an- there's a few annoying kiss fans that now kind of like shout out requests for songs <laughs> do they pick this album yeah <laughs> right, okay so I guess time is a great healer, <laughs> is, the, is the moral of that particular anecdote. I love, I love the quote here that, that, um, that, that, that you've got, um, uh, this would be our Tommy. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Gene says that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, to be fair, he does. <laughs> and hiring the producer of one of the greatest Pink Floyd albums does not a classic make. However, I can really appreciate the case that you've made for this. <laughs> Uh, having listened to it, um, but of the six records, actually no, of the three records that you presented me with to listen to, um, this was my least favourite of the three. Okie dokie. We move on to uh, we move on to 2002, and Pet Shop Boys release. So Pete, why why are we listening to this one? So this is your chance now to have revenge. Um, my my three records have a theme. Um, uh, and uh, my theme, my overarching theme for the three that I picked was very much an artist or a band hitting the reboot button. It kind of applies strongly to two of the records. One of the artists, less so, because he hits the reboot button every time he releases a record. But th- this was very much um, a, a reset a reset for the Pet Shop Boys. After the um, critically mauled and less favourable albums of the late 90s, Bilingual and, and Nightlife, um, and particularly after Nightlife, which had been a, a, a stonking opus of, of, of gay disco music, um, there was a sense in the Pet Shop Boys um, pack camp to sort of scale it back and, yeah. and do something that was the complete reversion of the previous album, which is a format that they have followed mostly throughout their, their career. Uh, so they decided to do, do a Paul McCartney and Wings and do a, a stripped back dirty rock album um, they went on a student, as a student and small venue tour to promote it. Yeah, they played unis and stuff, didn't they? And they played unis and stuff, and they they got rid of all the sort of fancy pants costumes and 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 productions on their videos as well. And they got a few sort of students and art house directors to do these little videos that that, that actually was sort of filmed on homemade cameras and stuff uh, to promote the singles of, of, that were associated with this album. This album is does not score highly with the critics. It does not score highly with general pet head fandom. And so we're in similar territory as the Kiss album, really. Yeah, it's in a similar territory, exactly, and that's why I picked it. And I'll be honest with you, despite your love for the Kiss album, 
I'm not a big fan of this album either. Uh, to me, it's better than its immediate predecessor. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly not in my, my top half of Pet Shop Boys albums. Um, so I'm making a case for a record here. I can see the value, and I went with the theme. It's undervalued and underrated, so that's the theme I'm running with. Um, it does begin with a bit of a classic, Home and Dry, which was probably the biggest hit from the, from the album. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has very much a Beatles leaning throughout Home and Dry, and, and certainly I Get Along. Uh, which uh, a little bit of politics was the um, was the Tony Blair ballad, Beatles leaning via Oasis, via Oasis, and and I think that's the trap it falls into. Uh, but I'm not I'm not here to critique it. I'm here to stand <laughs> up for it. Um, it, it that's my it, job. Yeah, no, that's your job. I find that this album um, it, it strips everything back, and at the time they released it, they, they described it as a new Pet Shop Boys sound. And when you saw the album live, it actually came across very well and in, in many ways was prescient, as have several of their albums been, including the two I just mentioned, yeah. of other acts that were to follow within a year or two. I mean, with, the, with, with Bilingual, we had the whole late 90s Latin thing. With, with Nightlife, um, the immediate predecessor, it was very much a forerunner to the Scissor Sisters career. Yeah. And with this album, um, it ranges very much from Keen through to Coldplay. And, and at its best moments, you could even hear the killers. So um, it was, in many respects, um, a forerunner, but also a palate cleanser. From this base, they got themselves a little bit of indie cool. Not necessarily with the critics, not necessarily with their traditional fan base, but they got themselves a little bit of indie cool. And from this point onwards, they were able to build on that. And we had the, I would say, in the, the 10 to 12 years that followed, perhaps one of their more successful, apart from... Their, their, their imperial heyday, probably one of their most successful phases of their career, with albums uh, such as Fundamental and Yes that followed this. Um, it allowed them to sort of experiment and yet return to form. Which is also, again, what most fans would say is similar about the Kiss album, that they, that, that that after that they kind of like kicked in and produced two of what Kiss fans consider generally to be mm. their, amongst their best records. Indeed. Do you really want me to talk Go about this? On. First of all, was this, was this the one we went to the album launch for? Um, yeah, I could have been at this one. Cause we no, that was another time. That was another one, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know how much I used to love the Petra Boys? Yes. Uh, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, this album is why. <laughs> this album is dreadful. Yeah, go on. No, it really is. It started. The starts. It starts off, and it's Mike and the Mechanics. <laughs> then it's Oasis. Mm-hmm. And then, and, I, and I'm saying that those two are the better tracks on the album. Mm. Then it just gets really, 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 really dull and bland, and just it's, it's a weird. I had a weird experience listening to this, this album because I was thinking. Theoretically, this album should be my Pet Shop Boys album because it it's it's the rock, it is the rock album. album. Johnny Marr on guitar. Yeah, but it just sounds I don't know bland. I mean, it's, it's all kind of, it's all kind of one paced. It's all kind of bit dirgy. It's lacking the kind of even at my most Pet Shop Boys hatingness level. I always admired the kind of sense of humour and sense of fun and, and lyrical inventiveness 
that was there in the songs. None of that here, really. Um, and, and some of it just felt like, bizarrely, like you just got on to, you'd gone back in time and got on to a really bad cruise, and the kind of cruise band were these two blokes who were pretending to be the Pet Shop Boys, but not. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, I'm trying to think, um, I mean, is it love is what is it? Is, uh, love is a catastrophe. Love is a, love is a catastrophe. And here, uh, kind of all right. Yeah. And I was almost saved briefly by those by those by those two tracks. Um, but by the time you, by the time you choose finished, I was asleep and quite literally last night when I was on my third <laughs> listen of it, I was literally asleep by um, that track. Yeah, I, um, a birthday boy, a birthday boy, which is apparently a song that has got quite a slagging. Yeah. Off previously. If you ignore the fact that it is seriously overly long, I mean, seriously overly long, it's six and a half, six and a half minutes long. It's not that bad. And as you, and as you said, I have I have seen them doing that live on YouTube clips and stuff, mm. and it comes across much better there than it does on 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 the record. So as you're saying, this may be definitely a case of an album where the material comes across better in a live experience than it does on record. On record, it was just really, really flat. And yeah, I was, it, it, I was, I was surprised how much bizarrely, with my new kind of positive, <laughs> huggy, quite like, quite, 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 quite don't, quite, quite don't mind, quite don't mind the Pet Shop Boys I'm quite kind of thing. Uh, hat on, but yeah. I kind of thought, no, this, this reminds me of all the things. Said it doesn't because it was the previous albums that have actually kind of warmed too slightly. Mm. But this, yeah, this I, I can understand why this has been mostly forgotten. To be honest, it, it has, and 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 I agree with you on on on, on some of that. This album um, very much uh, allowed them to 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 move on and to build something that was that was new. Uh, very very much after this album, they entered a second phase of their career. Um, because because there was a feeling, particularly amongst fans, that that during the late nineties in particular, well, that was a difficult time <laughs> to be a Pet Shop Boys fan. Yeah, <laughs> because I suppose. you know there was the glories of yesteryear, and the the output perhaps wasn't as commercially successful as it used to be. Although although it remained critically successful, and and this album was very much um, as, a, as I say the re, the reset or the reboot button. Um, it allowed them to do something that was that was personal that was very different to anything that they would do before or since and and then actually i mean even within 12 months of this record coming out um there was a a, um, a remix record based on it um here got turned into a, a really good classic disco stomper of, of a pet shop boys nature that you probably appreciate of look course it up, look it up if you get a chance and um and and and, and in fact about a year later um, they released Disco 3 and the enemy was just like they're back yeah. this oddball collection of B-sides remixes and other oddities was actually um, you know seen as something of a comeback and of course that was followed by two uh, an amazing greatest hits collection and, a, and a, an absolutely brilliant album a couple of years later in, in, in Fundamental so in my mind this is undervalued with good reason but but underappreciated in, the, in, what it, in what it meant in terms of their career Okie dokie. Two down, four to go. <laughs> We've already been talking a lot, it's amazing. 
Okay, uh, back to me, and mm-hmm. it's uh, back to 1988, and the uh, second album, uh, third if you count the EP, which some people do, they're wrong. Uh, second album <laughs> by Fishbone, um, Truth and Song. And again, going back to 1988, this is the t- time where I was still very much a metal fan, and but also listening to other things and seeing what was going on. And I I don't remember the album coming out per se, but I remember hearing Scott Not Ian, who was the guitarist in Anthrax, talking about it and wearing a T-shirt and at gigs and stuff. And this is about the same time where he was also doing bigging up Public Enemy at the same time. And I'd followed his lead with the Public Enemy thing, so I thought... Actually, yeah, probably going to be pretty good. So I thought, you know, let's do the same same with fish fishbone because they sounded interesting. And by his description, they were kind of like, you know, you got his band, you got his band there, kind of ska band that play rock and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, it'd be interesting. Although, yeah, we already had the Clash, of course, our classic ska band that played rock or rock band that played ska. However. Bought this record, thought, let's give it a go. And within the first few bars of uh, their hard rock version of Curtis Mayfield's classic Freddy's Dead, I was just hooked. Mm. So I thought, okay, this rocks, man. Really rocks. I was thinking, oh, great, it's going to be one of those albums, one of those albums. And he gets to the end. And suddenly you just go into a couple of tracks of just pure laid-back, happy ska music. Admire and Par and Question of Life, which is just totally kind of, yeah, 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 kind of stuff. And that's the thing I love about this album. It's a beautiful, or annoying, depending on your point of view, cacophony of, of, of hard rock, punk, ska and funk. This is the album that the Red Hot Chili Peppers have been trying to make for <laughs> their entire career, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Um... And it's just great. It's it's it's, it's lyric, lyric, lyrically. There's lots of if you ignore stuff like boning in the boneyard, which, uh, as Angelo Moore, the lead singer, said when someone said, "What's this song about?" He kind of went, uh, mm. "It's about boning in the boneyard." <laughs> uh, most of the lyrics are actually about uh, race and racism and this and that. So it's quite it was quite on the money that way, and it's just still now. Now I was playing all the way home tonight, tonight, and, just, and still the kind of mixture of the metal, the kind of, I mean, at the end, you've got a kind of like basically kind of acoustic guitar ballad. Uh, because, like, big funk, some really great bass playing, particularly on one song One Day, some really, really funky, funky bass. In fact, they didn't use the same term. Uh, and a record that still for me stands stands up very, really well. It was, came out at a time where you where you had, uh, I should say, most of the band, uh, the band are black, and obviously it was a time where. You had bands like Living Colour, 24-7 Spies, all these bands coming out that were doing rock, proving that black people could do rock as if black people couldn't do rock. Um, but unlike them, Fishbane were trying to do everything. And possibly because they tried to do everything and still tried to do everything, they've never really had the commercial success that uh, this album at least certainly deserved. Pete? I think I think this is going to be uh, uh, one where we're close to agreeing. Um, 
this is a, a, a short and very enjoyable record. Um, in terms of in terms of one of the things that we've picked up on, and particularly in the last year or two or three in the podcast, is bands that um, find it hard to sort of settle down with a particular sound. Yeah. And this is only their second album. And they're already experimenting with, with different sounds. You can see that this is the bass funk is still there. But, you know, you've got a little bit of thrash, a little bit of rock, you know, other things thrown in as well. Um, and actually, I think overall, this record sort of settles quite well yeah. together. Um, and uh, one of the better tracks for me was actually one of the shortest. Really enjoys subliminal fascism. It's a classic. It's a classic. <laughs> you know, and, and I think for me, that sums up everything about the band. It's, it's, it's commentary, uh, good lyrics, good music mishmash of styles but in a very positive way and uh, I actually of the of the three that you recommended this is probably the one I enjoyed the most yeah okay you know um, that's not to say that uh, anyway comes to that in a moment um, yeah no I, th- I felt I felt this is a this is a really good really good album um, I think it deals with second album syndrome very well yeah and we've we've talked to before about artists that, that have kind of tried to do that uh, but actually no uh, I think this, this this album for me um, was was a very enjoyable record and is certainly underrated. So back to you, <laughs> and perhaps people would say slightly predictably. Uh, I think the, pro- pro- the thing that most people are going to re- do when they get to the end of this podcast is, and they're going to be thinking, why is it not Depeche Mode at the end rather than David Bowie? But apart from that, so Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> okay. Yeah, with teeth know, people that know me um, 2005 one for next time perhaps yeah fourth album again for me um, un- underrated in terms of its impact on, on the artist in question um, and again that reset button with the album immediately preceding the, 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 the double ed- the double double edged uh, well it might have been um, um, the double LP uh, Fragile, which was just epic in terms of its scope, which in itself had had to do the, the follow-on act for the Downward Spiral, which yeah. is considered by many to be the classic. Um, Wrongly. Okay. Um, <laughs> with Teeth uh, is, 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 again, it's the palate cleanser. It's a guy going back into the studio, having gone quite some way to getting over a number of personal and professional demons. And, mostly personal, yes. And mostly personal. And actually sitting down and said, right, I'm going to record a NIN record for the first time in Yonks. The fans are going to expect some sort of convoluted, very carefully constructed epic. And I'm just going to go in and do a rock album in, yeah. my, in my style, which is exactly what he does. Um, this, is, this is just a rock album, but it's a very listenable album. This is probably... One of the most mainstream albums I think he's ever done, in terms of in terms of um, in terms of his career and in terms of in terms of the the, the Nin sound, um, the Nin sound, the Nin sound. <laughs> um, you know, there are some great tracks on here that are fairly reflective of the themes that he carries forward. Um, you know, we have we have we have great radio radio friendly songs like "Every Day" is exactly the same. Um, and with sunspots, you've got the um, the hint of that nothing can stop me now 
self-destruction theme that's run throughout his career. Dark and brooding. The dark and brooding, nothing can stop me now, thing that's run there forever. Uh, but you also have, you know, The Hand That Feeds, which is another classic sort of Nin single. Um, and a number of the other themes that he touches on around relationships, drugs, death, life. Yeah. And all that. Um, so it has the right amount of distortion in industry. And yet, to Boom, me, it's... Tish, I like yeah, it. You like Very it. good. Um, but at the same time, I think this is probably his cleanest, <laughs> in all senses of the word, his cleanest rock record. And for that reason, I think it's it's underappreciated. Particularly, again, it comes at a point in his career where the, the past is clearly behind him. And by doing this, clear the decks, then we can move back on to Year Zero, Ghosts, all the soundtrack stuff that would... Stop with the fucking come. soundtrack stuff, seriously. <laughs> Go on. Yeah, I agree, I agree. It, 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 this, is, this is the rock... The, the rock album um in fact the uh various points on the album if you if you kind of go for you know hands that hand, hand that feeds um you know what you are um getting smaller it is the metal yeah. album it's the metal album yeah and because obviously yeah, he, was do, he was doing a metal album he obviously ro- roped in uh the nicest man in rock trademark yeah. dave Grohl, yeah to uh do the drumming yeah. And there's some serious drumming on the album, um, and this is actually this, this is actually one of my favourite Nin albums, uh, possibly because of the rockness. Um, however, bizarrely, I, I think it also contains in the kind of non-outwardly rocky stuff, particularly if you take the opening and closing tracks, "All Love in the World" and "Right Where It Belongs," mm. two of the best songs that mm. Trent has ever written, mm. in my opinion. Uh, both very much in his plinky plonky mm. mode of uh, background sound, but actually both really, really, really nice. But I suppose ballads, for want well, of a better word. All, it's, it's hard to call Trent Reznor songs ballads, but all, it is all, kind of ballads. All the love in the world is is um, really demonstrates his love of dance music, which is often yeah. forgotten, but is clearly apparent throughout his entire career. Uh, and right where it belongs, I, I mean, I know we were reviewing the standard. Uh, of course, the UK version has a real ballady version of that tucked away right at the end as well, which is really, really yeah. strong track. But yeah, it's, it's an album. It's an album that I, I, I do like, and I said it is probably one of my of the Nin, of Nin's back catalogue. It's one of the ones that I come back to more often than not. Mm. So actually, this mm. was a popular choice with me. Yes, likewise, actually, uh, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. So, we go back, the furthest we go back in this podcast, I've decided to drag Pete back to 1970. Well, I remember it well. And, uh, fourth album from Californian band Spirit, uh, The Twelve Dreams of Dr. Sidonicus. Um, I've chosen this partly, well, again, I blame my brother for this one, really, and my age, just generally. Um, and this is one of those records that, that I don't think was necessarily underappreciated, although it didn't do, um, when it originally released, didn't sell bucket loads. It became more popular as the 70s went on, kind of thing, and the spirit went on, people kind of went back to it. But unlike, because spirit aren't really a name that people know, if you, if you say spirit, 
people aren't going to go, oh yeah, Spirit, that's the band that did X, Y, Z. Um, incidentally, they did do a really good, really good song that um, later became the start of Stairway to Heaven, but there's a legal case still ongoing about that particular aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they were just one of those bands that, uh, for me, amongst friends and people that I know that know music, just kind of fell, seemed to have fallen through a crack. So you've got p- people that know about bands of the period, classic bands of the period, obviously the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, um, the Birds, um, God, um, The Doors? Yeah, The Doors. <laughs> even, 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 even Mr. Rundgren, in fact. Yeah. yeah. Pink. Yeah. Pink. Uh, but this album is is one that I've come back to many times over over, over the years. Again, nice, perfect length album, as I would call it. It's under forty minutes, classic kind of like twenty minutes assigned kind of thing. Twelve tracks, as you might imagine, from the title of the uh, album, and it's just a really good pop record. Is is probably the best way of describing it, really. Um, starts off with kind of nothing to hide and nature's way with animal zoo. Just really, really, really strong pop tunes. Uh, not only pop tunes for the seven, 1970, but pop tunes for now, frankly. Mr. Skin equal, equally. Slagged off at the time, particularly, that, that track particularly, but it's just a cracking track. Including the... And that's the thing I love it. He's got early Moog, vibraphone, reverse tape sounds... Space Child is very much Rundgren-esque at the same time that Todd was starting to do something very similar, so you could probably say Todd was Spirit-esque equally. Ping. Uh, exactly. <laughs> backward ping. Backward. Citation. Backward citation ping. Backward citation ping. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just think this is a... Uh, there are the tracks that are a bit kind of... Yeah. Uh. But generally, spe- generally speaking, particularly, for, um, particularly the first half of the album... I think is still just a pure joy. So, uh, so I brought this out simply because I, I love the first half of the album so much, and because it is genuinely a, a, an album that is forgotten, and most people should know more about this record. Should, yeah, I agree with that last statement completely. More people should. I didn't know anything about Spirit until this podcast, this exercise. Um, yeah, people should know more about Spirit, and uh, I also agree with the. Uh, Wait, the comment you said, um, I made some good pop tunes on here that would probably stand up even today. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Todd. I, I often, when I listen to an album like this, and it, I kind of get that 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 feeling of, of, of the White Album. Um, and I yeah, think very this, much so, this yeah. This is kind of how the Beatles could have been had they had they continued. It sort of very much follows down that, 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 that yeah. White Album, George Harrison route of um, psychedelic rock, um, which is, which is you know, a real, real joy to listen to. So I, I really enjoyed this record. Um, and I'm going to take back what I said earlier. This was up there with the, with the, um, the Fishbone record in terms, of, in terms of enjoyment. And in particular, uh, tracks like Nature's Way, as you say, and Mr. Skin. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, wh- why isn't this record better, better known? Isn't, why isn't the artist better known? Um, Pink did sam- sample a uh, track of... Like a fresh garbage off their, I think following following album on one of her previous singles, but right. apart from that, that's as much as they've got it. recently. That's the only the only exposure it's got, which seems a shame. 
So I would encourage anyone to, to, to pick up this record and listen to it. So we finish with David Bowie. Oh, as, he's, as he's known on the podcast David Bowie how could we not do a special podcast without mentioning David this is true what a fantastic death abyss yeah tell the others hmm. um, David Bowie if you're being pedantic one outside um, you are so go on yeah. this album again I'm kind of pushing my theme of the reset button a little bit here but actually this is the first time he worked with Eno for many years it was, uh, yes. And in many ways... Was it the first time since Lodger? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways, I felt that this, in a similar kind of way, reinvigorated him and reinvigorated his career for, for the um, the albums and times to follow. Um, this album was... <laughs> Bowie does an experimental album. Really? <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> he doesn't, you know... So unlike my other two choices, that that, that element doesn't come as a surprise. Yeah, how do you follow up the Bit of, bit of Suburbia soundtrack well, that, well, that was my point. I mean, as, as much loved as that was, um, this, I felt, was a real kind of a reset in terms of in terms of what Bowie was, was doing in the mid-90s and what he was... When he was aiming to do and some of the influences he was listening to at the time got to a point now in his career where bands that were coming through like Nin were clearly influenced by Bowie um, you've got, you got other bands at the other end of the spectrum like Neil Tennant and the Pet Shop Boys vocally and artistically lyrically had also been influenced by Bowie um, point to return to uh, <laughs> it, so this album in many ways um, when I was in the middle of my 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 heavy nin phase yeah this very much reached out to me i said oh god I, of course i knew about david bowie but at the same time i was like oh he does stuff that actually is actually current and i can listen to it it's great and it's and it you know it's it's doing the heart's filthy lesson and it's and it's hello space boy and it's all yeah, industrial which are, which, is actually, which are both pure nin very nin very nin influenced um but at the same time then you realize that nin itself was yeah anyway um, but at the same time, what the revelation for me has been listening to this album for the umpteenth time, but re-listening to it for this particular podcast has been actually how classic Bowie it is in places as well. When you've got tracks like "Strangers When We Meet" and um, oh yeah, "Strangers When We Meet," that that for, it's funny you say that. I'm put in for this, but it's funny you say that because I, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking mm. as bizarre a record as, it, as this is. Yeah. It's still a record where he decided to stick Strange Way Meet in, which which yeah. could sit on virtually any, any Bowie album for the of any decade. Previous twenty and not years feel, and not be out of place. Exactly, prior to this release. Um and other things like I've not been to Oxford Town. Um and, and this album very much pointed backwards but also pointed forwards to, to the al- albums like Hours that followed it and albums ultimately um um you know, such as Heathen, uh, it, it sort of it was it was pointing in that direction, but 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 they went all te- he went he went all kind of drum and bass. Then he went all drum and bass in the before middle, that, though. You know, this, however, has in comparison to those later records, this had the absolutely wonderful con- concept or even conceit of um, of the art detective operatic mystery running through it, which yeah. is this classic Bowie doing. Crazy segues and, and so you're not the Kiss album. No, no, no one has yet edited out on no. Bowie's Bo- 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 sleeve voices Good. in this. No, exactly. Um, so it's a, it's a nice comparison to make because this is actually silly voices 
done well. <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't seen their voices have done well, but the songs are good. Yeah, the songs are great, and uh, the concept of the, the art detective is, is, is one that has, has stayed with me. So this is why I put this one forward as uh, perhaps one of his more, more underrated, but yet actually great, great Barry records. And of course, one more thing, obviously I've mentioned Nin, I've mentioned the PSB, both are connected to this album via remixes. They are indeed. <laughs> it's a special ting, as opposed to a ping for that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, this, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know when you cho- chose this, because we have, dis- we have discussed this uh, album tediously, frankly. Uh, privately? Yeah. I thought this for- was a chance for us to air it. Because <laughs> um, we're, we're, we're both uh, a big fan of this record. Um, and we're in a unique group. Although, there are, obviously, there are, there are lots of people, very fans, that think this is a great record. Um, similarly, there are loads that are glad that the originally planned parts two, three, and four never emerged. <laughs> I don't know, I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but again, this is the, like, the recording of the last Bowie album, where you're going, yeah, we've got recorded enough stuff for about three albums. Mm. You know, it's that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, but actually, I think this is actually a perfect album to be reviewing ahead of the next Bury, Bury release because if the stuff that's been kind of previewed so far off the new Bowie album is anything to go by, it certainly fits in more with the kind of uh, esoteric stuff that's on this record than on the last Bowie album. So... By which I mean it's kind of more kind of experimental jazz type thing that you get on uh, small plot of land, mm. um, and 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 to, to a certain extent in the middle of heart sort of lesson, lesson mm. as well is equally a bit of that, and uh, the motel, which I think is one of the best tracks on this album, which is very much that kind of jazz infused kind mm. of piano yeah. thing, um, with a bit of guitar in the middle that's. Pretty much self-referential back to uh, a guitar sound used in Diamond Dogs, but it is again as you said, listening to this album again. Um, well, I listened to it uh, earlier on in the year actually, but when I listened to it again this last couple of weeks, uh, it says you're thinking, "Oh yeah, I forgot about that little bit. I forgot about that little bit," and even some of the uh, sleeve. It's like we prick you. I'd forgotten how. <laughs> yeah. How funny we prick you is as a song, and, and just genuinely catchy. It's a, it's a great. I think it, I only think at the time of the album came out, they've still got a great pop song. It was. Mm. Uh, we've already touched on when Strange, Strange When You Meet. As I said just it is just bizarre, classic Bowie thing, just kind of like thrown in. The Nin the influences is is fairly obvious. Hartsfield Lesson is actually we're probably even now. Rank in my top ten favorite Bowie songs, right. all right. time. Right. Always a song I liked. Really liked it when it came out. Had a great video. Mm. Really like it now. Had a great remix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hello, Space Boy. Had an especially good remix. <laughs> it did, but well, for, for, this 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 where I'm going to be ping ping worthy, but yeah. also related back 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 to Nin. It's funny actually that the. the the uh, Pet Shop Boys took a very similar approach to Hello Space Boy as Todd took to uh, mm. the Nin track. When, when, yes. they, when, they, when they both thought, what this track needs is more of me stroke us. <laughs> yeah. 
singing. So put themselves in that bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, so that, agree. So that so that was quite amusing. And yeah, I mean, this is you know one of my favorite Bowie albums. So uh, it's a gr- it's a great choice. It's one that I think all true Bowie fans, or even Bowie fans, love. Um, but it was a difficult record for pop Bowie fans. And I have a strange feeling that the upcoming Bowie album will fit into the same category. I have a feeling too. Uh, so yeah, Paddy, all together now. Fantastic <laughs> death habits. Right, that's the end of that one. Merry Christmas, everybody. Wow. And um, we'll see that's you different. for the end of year roundup. We spent 44 minutes.